Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape a space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity charades and political pablum by giving voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're tuning in from the United States, hope you had a chance to enjoy President's Day yesterday. Now, as an Illinoisan, born and bred, unrepentant fanboy of Honest Abe Lincoln, you know I'm always game to celebrate President's Day. I know, I know it's painfully passe to express any interest, let alone an appreciation for anything having anything to do with America, American history, or especially American presidents. Nothing more passe than powerful dead white men. Word up. Look, I promise there's no bust of Lincoln, no bust of Washington on the mantle of my fireplace. Yo, I don't even have a fireplace. I don't even have a fireplace. But I do think, I really do, that Abe Lincoln is unquestionably one of the most compelling characters of his generation, if not beyond. Indeed, there's a timelessness to Lincoln that I, for one, find enchanting. Yo, I'm not alone. Doris Kearns Goodwin. You know Doris Kearns Goodwin? I dare say you oughta. She's a first-rate historian and a true American treasure. Anyway, in her Pulitzer Prize-winning work on Honest Abe, she talks of the admiration that Leo Tolstoy had for Lincoln. She shares this story of Tolstoy's visit to some remote village in the Caucasus where Tolstoy was regaling the tribal locals with stories of great people through the ages. Now, Tolstoy asked, and, and I'm reading from the Kearns Goodwin text now. Now, why was Lincoln so great that he overshadows all other national heroes? He really wasn't a great general like Napoleon or Washington. He was not such a skillful statesman as Gladstone or Frederick the Great. But his supremacy expresses itself altogether in his peculiar moral power and in the greatness of his character. Washington was a typical American. Napoleon was a typical Frenchman. But Lincoln was a humanitarian as broad as the world. He was bigger than his country, bigger than all the presidents together. We are still too near to his greatness, Tolstoy concluded. But after a few centuries more, our posterity will find him considerably bigger than we do. His genius is still too strong and too powerful for common understanding, just as the sun is too hot when its light beams directly on us. That's Tolstoy. Yeah, Lincoln's genius is still too strong and too powerful for common understanding. Maybe, maybe so, but common as I am, <laughs> I like President's Day because it establishes a time for me to at least try to understand Lincoln, which I might argue to you, my dear listener, is very much a worthwhile endeavor. 
That said, now that I think about it, this pitch I'm making for President's Day is probably an expression of a broader appetite I seem to be developing to mark time by reflection and for stopping to commemorate and to celebrate. If you've been listening to this season of the pod, you surely heard me babble about the saboteur. It's my new weekly newsletter. How hungry am I for reflection? How hungry am I for celebration? Well, friends, I'll tell you. In Friday's edition of The Saboteur, I made a full-throated case for Valentine's Day. Yep, me. Cynical old me was making a case for Valentine's Day. Look, I was wrong. Valentine's Day doesn't suck. I suck at Valentine's Day. You can read my case for Valentine's Day at daniellazar.substack.com. I reckon I made a persuasive case. Anywho, I link to the saboteur in the show notes to this episode. It's daniellazar.substack.com. Check it out. Gotta tell you, I am finding a lot of joy in this Friday newsletter ritual. You know what else I found a lot of joy in? This here conversation that I'm about to share with you with Steve Dye. Steve is the founding pastor at the Crossways International Baptist Church here in Berlin. Now, if you've been listening to this here podcast, you might have correctly concluded that I am a thoroughly secular fellow. Frankly, I'm not even sure I'd cop to call myself spiritual. But I really enjoy Steve's spirit. He's a kind soul. He has convictions. We talk about what it was like for him to move to Berlin, sight unseen, to plant a Baptist church. We discuss the work of developing and delivering sermons. We explore community and cross-cultural communication and fellowship. Steve's a fine fellow indeed, and I had a lovely time exploring his work with him. Pretty sure you will too. So here it is, my conversation with Baptist pastor, Steve Dye. Steve Dye, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? Well, first of all, Daniel, it's great to be on For a Living. I've caught a couple of your podcasts and have enjoyed it so much. But yeah, how do I describe what I do? I guess I would say pastoring, pastoring an international congregation right here in the great city of Berlin and working with a, a team of leaders to oversee this congregation. That would be my primary job. And then in the last couple of years, I've pulled back from that a little bit to assume a second role uh, with our mission organization, and that is uh, serving as a, the title is regional director of the Middle East and North Africa and giving support and direction to some missionaries who are, are living in this area of the world. Well, I really look forward to, to getting into both the primary and the secondary roles. But before we do, I hope you could tell me, like, how did you get on this path? Was there a moment, perhaps even a revelation, if I dare say, when you knew that pastoring was your calling? Yeah, yeah, well, I guess it goes back to being a little guy, uh, five years of age, uh, Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was in what we call a 
kind of a summer camp or vacation Bible school, and I was hearing Bible stories, and I really was sort of gripped by an invitation, you know, even though I was just, yeah, a little five-year-old guy, to to sort of make a commitment uh, regarding what I was hearing concerning the, the gospel story about Jesus, you know, coming to us. That was probably the, the start of this, you know, spiritual journey. But again, five, five years right, of age. Right, right. But I would say in my seventh grade year, all of this, this faith, it really seemed to be real. And I just remember I would take walks in fields. What had happened is our family, when I was about 10 years old, we moved from the city of Columbus to the farm and a plot of land, about 60 acres. Oh my. Yes. That was in my uh, family on my mother's side for a couple of generations. And so my parents uh, moved out to the farm, remodeled the old farmhouse that had become dilapidated. And anyway, just enjoyed um, walking the fields. And, and um, you know, it, it just seemed this whole thing of God and uh, Jesus and the Spirit, it, it just seemed to begin to make sense. And so there was almost this desire, I would say going back to seventh grade, of of having an interest in spiritual things and then along with that kind of a growing desire to help other people. But there still was no thought of being a pastor. I did think of maybe camp work because I loved nature. And um, I thought, well, that's a way to maybe combine spiritual interests with nature. But what held me back was the fear of speaking. Huh. <laughs> you really? <laughs> yeah, I remember it, it, it's a nightmare. I, I think I still replay this, you know, every now and then after all these years, but I was a teenager in our church youth group and I was supposed to get up and share a little devotional or something. I can't ever remember the nature of it, Yeah. but it was supposed to be about five minutes long. And uh, I remember I went through everything that I had planned to say in about 30 seconds. (laughs) And then my mind just blanked. And I remember they're all looking at me, these teenagers expectantly, what's he going to say? And I, I was blank. I had nothing to say. And I remember to the right of me on the wall, there was a clock. And I remember just looking at the clock and seeing those seconds tick, tick, tick. And, And then just sitting down in humility. And I told myself, I am never going to do that again. (laughs) So, so then there was another opportunity. Now we're going to fast forward to my first year in college and uh, upstate New York at, at a little Bible college there before I transferred to a kind of a four year uh, liberal arts college. But anyway, I was there and there was the opportunity to teach. I was on a quartet, a men's quartet, and we were going to go to a church. There was the opportunity to teach. They needed an adult uh, Sunday school class teacher. And and the other guys looked at me and said, Steve, you're going to teach it. And I remember there's a there's a letter, an epistle in the New Testament called Philippians 
And just so that I wouldn't have the same experience that I had, you know, as a younger teenager, I went through that entire book in 45 minutes. So I did not run out of material. That time. So th then I think the, the confidence to, to speak grew. So I think the, the growing passion maybe for spiritual things and sensing a connection with God, a desire to help people, and then maybe getting affirmation from others, those things just sort of worked together. And uh, then someone reached out to me to come and be a youth pastor at the the church in Columbus that I had grown up in, the one that I referred to that I was there as a five-year-old. No kidding. So I went back to that that to that church, and that's kind of uh, how it, it started. So how old were you when you returned to Columbus, to the congregation of your youth? Yeah, I would have been a senior in college, and so I was about 21 years old. And then uh, from there, I went on to... Uh, seminary, got married, went on to seminary in Indiana, and I was a youth pastor there as well. And then my wife and I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I did a second master's degree there and was on staff at a church there as the title was youth and outreach pastor. And then it's that congregation that really is the main congregation behind having sent us to Berlin, Germany uh, back in 2001. So you've been here for more than two decades. You and I are, are both immigrants. I, I love immigrant stories. And in fact, I have to confess to you that I asked your youngest son, Zach, today, who the listeners, I don't mind sharing with them. He's my student and I adore the kid I've taught uh, a couple of your kids, I've gotten to know all of them, and all of them are just truly, truly wonderful people. And I asked Zach today, like, if there's one thing he would want to hear you talk about, he goes, you have to ask him about how we got to Berlin. So on behalf of Zach and my own curiosity, given my love of immigrant stories, can you talk a little bit about how you got to Berlin? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to do so. We were serving in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and um, I guess I had a growing desire, and I would say my wife Becky as well, to maybe consider uh, serving in a ministerial role cross-culturally. Uh, however, we, yeah, we love the U.S., and um, we, we just really couldn't picture... Uh, making that transition, but going back to, I guess, this uh, this passion for the Lord that I referred to, you know, beginning in those early years, we, we just sensed a tug, a calling, if you will, and we found out about an opportunity in Berlin. What made that so attractive is I had a desire to maybe uh, lead a congregation pastorally. I had been serving in more associate roles, but I also had a growing desire to maybe interact with, with people who come from more of a secular background and then a growing desire for internationals. I, I just loved uh, anytime I would engage someone from another culture. I just found that fascinating. 
And so when I heard about this opportunity in Berlin to start an international church, it kind of brought together all those loves, you know, the the love of maybe moving into pastoral ministry, the desire for internationals, and uh, just maybe making a cross-cultural move. And so it was a, about a year, year and a half process to make that transition from that church in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, to then coming to Berlin and starting from scratch. Right. Like no, someone said, what are you going to do when you get to Berlin? And we did have an apartment lined up, only a temporary apartment. <laughs> uh-huh. And I said, I'm going to, I knew there was a, a grocery store across the street. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew there was, it was sort of like a Woolworth, one of those stores. And I, yeah. I said, I'm going to go buy a coffee maker and um, <laughs> some filters. Uh-huh. I, and, and I have my mug and I'm going to come back and just make a cup of coffee and just sit there and look out the window and just dream about what's in store for us in Berlin. And that's exactly <laughs> what I did our first day in Berlin. So it seems impossible, but it I'm sure it's true. You came here, Berlin sight unseen. Right. And you had the, the mission and the goal to found a church from scratch. That was the goal. That's right. <laughs> How did that feel? Because it's a very ambitious thing to do. When you were sitting there with your coffee and your fresh, you know, new mug, do you recall what it felt like to sit there and embrace that hope? Yeah, I would say it was a combination from the get-go of great excitement and anticipation you know, really having this sense that there is a calling to to do this and having a sense of, of the mission that is out there before us. So that excitement was there, but I must say also that that fear yeah, yeah. was there. So I would say that combination of the excitement and fear, they, they really were present um, uh, maybe do I dare say to this day, you yeah. know, I, I still sort of carry both of, of those, you know, to, to plant a church. I don't know what the stats are. I have read that it could be up to an 80%, you know, failure rate. Yeah. And so you realize this is very much a risky thing. And then you're not even doing it in your home culture. You're doing it in a different culture that will involve a, a different language. And then knowing that it was going to be an international church, multiple cultures right. uh, would have to be interacted with. I, I could see why you would have both tremendous hope and fear, but you, you succeeded. You and, and your community thrive here in Berlin. And there's a lot going on at Crossways. And if you would be so kind, could you kind of give me a sense of the various endeavors and events hosted at your church? Yeah, the main thing would be that Sunday service, that weekly Sunday service. And then throughout the week, there are different um Bible studies in different community groups that meet, uh, some in the church building itself, some in, in homes. 
And then there are special events, like for instance, we've just moved through the Christmas season. There was a live nativity and really we don't want to overflate it. There were just a couple of live sheep, but that made it, <laughs> made it pretty interesting. And, and um, you know, different uh, seasonal outreaches uh, for the community and then groups consisting of children and uh, youth meetings and then there's at least one, actually two, refugee homes that we, we go into on a regular basis. And so that just sort of gives a bird's eye view of some of the things that we're involved in. And most of the work that you do in preparation for all of this, like, is your workspace at the church? Uh, mainly the leaders work from their respective homes. However, you know, we do have access to an office in the church if we need that for a counseling session that maybe is more ideally suited uh, for that space. We, we do hold some other meetings, of course, at uh, the church, but in terms of the day-to-day work, it, it happens in our respective homes. Now, we do also have a, an apartment in Longfitz uh, that we we rent, and so we will have uh, leaders meetings there, and um, you know men's and women's events. Uh, it, there's actually a young lady staying there right now who's serving cross culturally as a missionary, and so she's staying there right now. So we use that space also. All right. So I don't do a ton of research on my guests, but just out of respect for you. And because I was enjoying thinking about you and and your work, I popped over to the website. Uh, If I may, I just want to read the mission statement to you. Sure, sure. The mission statement reads, Crossway International Baptist Church exists to gather people from various nations in worship of God, instruction from the Bible, and fellowship with one another in order to scatter in evangelism in Berlin and throughout the world. I I have a couple of questions oh, sure. about the mission statement alone. Yeah. Yeah. First, what does fellowship mean to you, and how in your work do you cultivate that? Yeah, uh, that that's a good question because it is so <clears throat> critical, you know, for for a church. I guess the the Greek word, you know, koinonia, is, is this idea of being together, uh, but with a goal, I guess, participation in, in ministry together. So it would be more than simply, you know, hanging out together, having a cup of coffee together. It's that, but it's more than that because it's this idea of we really are together for a common purpose. Someone said, that fellowship could be defined. It's kind of a goofy thing, I guess, but it's somewhat memorable. Two fellows in the same ship. This idea that you're together, but you're moving toward a common goal. And so I guess the second question was sort of how is that maybe fostered? Yeah. And, Yeah. And that can be challenging. In the New Testament, there are several of these one another's and, you know, encouraging one another, you know, 
loving one another, greeting one another. So I guess maybe that would be one way to explain it is just trying to live out these one another's meeting together, praying together, you know, serving together. But again, this idea of kind of having that that common goal that uh, we're all moving toward. You pastor in an age of increasing divisiveness and insularity and individualism. And I'm going to hazard to guess that creating fellowship in these times is perhaps harder than in previous times. Indeed, we live in the age of distractions. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you do in your work to bring people together so that you can support one another and listen to one another and greet one another? Because it's hard work in a way. It's good work. Yeah. But it's hard yeah. work. Yeah, it, it is hard. And I a couple of things come to mind. If, of course, we've been in the midst of this pandemic. And um, this would be an example of differing views on how we as a congregation were to have responded to that. And so, uh, you know, you have some people who would say, well, we shouldn't come together. The best thing that we can do, the way to love our neighbor is to really stay away from one another and do as much as we can, you know, remotely do everything by zoom. And then there were others who said, no, we need to come together um, as often as we can, like we did before. So that's just one example of uh, how to navigate differing opinions. And so you're trying to really talk to people and listen, you know, to their their input, but we as leaders did really come together and and we drafted something, you know, that we we sent out to the congregation, basically saying, you know, this is how we are going to approach it. And, you know, I'm very thankful, not that everyone agreed with it, but it seemed to strike a balance yeah. that both both groups you know, we're able to, to live with this. And, and so, you know, we didn't compromise coming together, but of course we had online options. And then that's, that's one issue. But another issue with fellowship is when it comes to a multicultural church, there really are uh, challenges that perhaps you wouldn't face, you know, more of a monocultural church. So I'm thinking of one example, we have this precious Nigerian woman in the church and then a lovely uh, German woman in the church. And they are both there to this day, but several years ago, it wasn't even pertaining to the particular topic that came up. It was a meeting regarding a decision we needed to make concerning children's ministry. And both of these were mothers and somehow the the two of them begin to have a disagreement over uh, worship styles, and uh, the the German woman was involved in leading worship in our church, <laughs> and so uh, she began criticizing the Nigerian lady for coming late, 
you know, for the Nigerian lady, she'll come in her own sweet time. But for the German lady, it was so important to be punctual, uh-huh. especially when she's up there leading the worship. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Nigerian lady said, well, if there was anything worth coming to, I would be there on oh, time no. because oh, the no. worship style wasn't <laughs> exciting enough for this Nigerian lady. So, uh, you know, there was a rift between those two and you're trying to bring them together. And it took a little while, but the two to this day, they are friends now. And it's a beautiful thing to see. But that's just an example of how you're trying to foster fellowship in a multicultural setting. Just one more question about fellowship. In addition to living in divisive times, polarizing times, and in addition to the challenges of, you know, tending to a flock that's quite multicultural, we live in really busy times also, and you're trying to get people to join you in fellowship on nights and weekends. People are working oftentimes extraordinary hours. I mean, you hear it from your friends and the members of your congregation, like everyone's trying to shove 20 hours of work into a 10 hour time frame. In your work, how do you get people to show up despite how tired and stressed and frustrated and anxious they might be? Yeah, that is a, a very good question. And it's, it's something that, you know, we, not only myself, but the other leaders need to be continually thinking of. And so I guess there are two things that come to mind. You know, number one, a church is a, it's a social organization. And, and we, we really need to listen to to people and not have too high expectations. And so this just happened um, very recently. Uh, We have a men's group that was meeting two times a month on two Saturdays a month, and uh, the numbers began to decrease. And so the decision was made, okay, let's, let's dial that back a little bit and let's, let's go to one meeting a month with with these guys Um, you know they have all their work responsibilities and many of them have families and so part of it is just trying to really gauge okay where are people at but I guess the other side of it you know it is a social organization but but there is that spiritual dimension too and so what I have learned is that if if people really sense a need you know, you have the kind of the horizontal relationships at a human level, but then there's this vertical relationship. And if people really do sense there is a God and they desire to to worship him and hear from his word, they will make that a priority. And so, you know, I have learned over the years, you really can't force people. You, you just, uh, try to work with people and provide something that is reasonable, but they are going to kind of vote with their feet and make that decision. But I'm just surprised at the commitment that many people have um, because there is that spiritual dimension and they're very serious about it. Yeah. There's a uh, second part of your mission statement. I hope I can get you to explore for me. I'm, I'm interested in the word choice you say in the statement that the mission is to scatter in evangelism. And I'll confess to you 
that I was unfamiliar with that term of art. So can you talk with me a little bit about how your work is wrapped up in scattering so much so that it's in the mission statement? Yeah, yeah. You know, we, yeah, we try to kind of zero in on those two keywords, the the gathering idea. And it also helps that we say worship, instruction, fellowship, and then evangelism. If you put those together, it, it, you have wife. Uh, and um, the, the church is called kind of the bride of Christ. So, so that hey. makes it somewhat memorable as well. But, but there, yeah, there's that gathering part. And then that leads to a scattering. The idea is we're going to gather, but then we're going to go out into our regular work week and um, we really, we're on mission, you know, wherever we go, whether it's Berlin or it is someplace else in the world, th this idea that, that we are sort of ambassadors, if you will, of a message. And as it's appropriate, can we share that both through our lips and, and then, of course, through our lifestyle to, to be consistent uh, with uh, what we are uh, speaking, you know, through our lips, practicing what, what we preach. Another, I guess, word image, there's a guy named David Pedersen who wrote a book on international churches, and, and he uses kind of the word picture of, of an oasis and a launching pad. And I think I really love that description for an international church because there is this idea, idea of a spiritual oasis. You're coming together, you know, worshiping God together. We're receiving instruction together. There is that fellowship together, this togetherness. And, and we want it to be a safe place, a, a refreshing place, you know, where people are just bombarded in the city of Berlin, you know, through the week and they, they come together and it, ah, this is an oasis. And then the other word picture is then a launching pad. It, when uh, you leave the uh, togetherness and you go out into your regular work week, there is this sense that you're going forth with a message to share. Not, not to be pushy, but for those who are interested in, in that. Um, and then we say kind of beyond Berlin because we do have people who leave you know, after two or three years, uh, they, they move on to another part of the world. And so you realize you just have a, for some of these people, a short time with them. Now, what, what's been, I think, very encouraging to see is in more recent years, we've seen people stay for a longer period of time. There's a growing number of Germans or, or German-speaking internationals, you know, who are quite integrated into life in, in, in Berlin. And so there, there has been a little more stability, but still we would have a good number who really are with us for two, three years, uh, sometimes even less than that. If you don't mind asking just yeah, a yeah. small question, I know it's maybe not easy to get a head count, but can you share a sense of about how many members are part of your congregation? Yeah, you know, uh, on a given... Sunday, you know, it can range probably around 120. I'm just, I'm just thinking of yesterday, for instance, because it's fresh in my mind. You know, there were probably 120 people, uh, you know, in the the auditorium. 
But then, of course, there are these ministries that you do throughout the, the week. And so kind of the, the catch might be a little bit larger than that, than just those who come on, on Sunday. Yeah. But yeah, you know, probably between 100 and 150 in terms of those that we're interacting with, you know, through the, through the week. Okay. Yeah. Not that it matters so much, but just maybe to give my listeners and I sort of like oh, a vision sure, for... Oh, sure, sure. So it's a, a manageable size, you know, it's still right. kind of in that small church category where you really can know everyone. And then I guess there are about maybe 20 nationalities represented uh, in the congregation. With that in mind, can you talk just a little bit about how being a pastor in a multicultural environment informs what you do? Yeah, I would say that uh, when you are a pastor in a multicultural environment, maybe I would hope, I would hope this would be the case, that you are perhaps uh, more careful to make sure that what you are teaching is tied to, as best as we can tell, you know, the authorial intent of what we see in Scripture. And, you know, we're not kind of bringing cultural baggage into the teaching and the way that we go about doing ministry. I just did not think of this when I was in the States in pastoral ministry. Right. And now you're here doing it. Yes. That's a really interesting response. And as someone who has taught in international schools and at multicultural schools, I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Okay. So there's actually a third question about the mission statement having to do with scattering throughout the world. But I hope I can uh, save that question for, for later. For now, I think it's critically important to establish that the core of your work is, is spiritual in nature. Yeah, yeah. And I think like the spirit requires reawakening when we wake each day. And with that in mind, if you would be willing, though sure. this maybe borders on the personal, I wonder if you can kind of walk me through your morning rituals. Like how does your day ordinarily begin? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm i happy to answer that question because I, I must say I enjoy that time in the morning uh, immensely. Um, although I hear that uh, you get up even earlier than I do, but I usually get up about <laughs> 5.30. Yeah. And um, it starts, I must say, instead of going right to my Bible, I do get a cup of coffee. Please and thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I just enjoy, I sort of methodically, uh, I, I hope it's not, when I say methodically, I don't want to act like there is uh, no emotion or passion attached to it. But I, I have found that it's helpful to kind of have a schedule in the way I read through uh, scripture, And so I sort of have a plan that allows me to read through Scripture each year, you know, so the, the entire Bible uh, each year. And so I'm in four different portions of Scripture. And so that's how I, I start. 
And then about that time, other family members start waking <laughs> up. And so there, there's sort of an interruption, you know. Not uh, that you begrudge them waking up. No, no, I, I definitely enjoy that. But then, yeah, you've got breakfast and I walk. You mentioned Zach, who you have mm-hmm. as a student. I walk him to the bus stop. And then usually at that point, I'll just continue on either either by going off for a jog and sort of combining um, you know, listening, maybe listening to a podcast and then sort of praying through some things or on the days I'm not jogging, I'll do a walk and kind of a prayer walk. And yeah. I, I carry my trusty day timer. I'm holding it right now. Uh-huh. Listeners, you can't see it, of course, but it's my day timer. And it's I, true. He's I not have my, man. <laughs> <laughs> I have my uh, my prayer list, you know, right, uh, right in this. And I sort of have a I have found that it's helpful to have some structure. And a few years ago, I was intru- I was introduced to this acrostic, uh, pray, P-R-A-Y. So I start, you know, praising God, and then the R is for repent. And I just take some time to kind of review the previous day. And uh, wow, you know, what, what words did I speak that yeah, really were inappropriate? Or, uh, you know, what, what actions did I commit or, or even what thoughts did I have just some time to have some examination? And then I go to the, the A is for ask, and that's kind of the lion's share of the prayer time because there's so much, this is when you get into actually praying for other people and, um, you know, certain health needs or spiritual needs, uh, situations either locally or, or globally, you know, that I'm, that I'm praying about. And I, you know, have it kind of broken down. We start, I start with my family and then I go to the church family and I go to some missionaries I'm praying for. And then again, you know, situations, current situations that are troubling me in in the world. And then the why is just this sense of yield, you know, having this, uh, posture before God of, uh, Hey, come what may, your servant is is yielding. You are you are God. I'm not, and so I'm available to listen to you to do what you would have me to do. You know, as I go throughout this day, that's the idea. It doesn't always work that way each day, but that is sort of the routine that I am trying to follow in the morning. So, I'm interested in all four letters of that acrostic. But I'm particularly interested right now in the A and the ask. And part of your work, as I understand it, is actually praying for other people. And I have to say, I find profound beauty in that. So much so that I hope you might be willing to talk a little bit about how you do that, what it feels like. Yeah, yeah. I have found that Again, it is very helpful, and I, I think the, the Bible would instruct us to do this, to, to really start with this idea of, of praising Him, you know, enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with, with praise. And then again, that time of examination, that repentance. But then, yeah, moving on to then asking or interceding for others, Um yeah, I try to, that can be so overwhelming. So what I have found to be helpful is to sort of break it into six 
days. So Sunday, because of the pastoral responsibilities, I, I usually don't go through the list. But the other days of the week, I really have it kind of broken down where I'm praying for specific family members on that day, specific people in the congregation that day, specific missionaries on that particular day. So I just try to organize it in such a way that that ideally, you know, I'm covering all these people. And yeah, you're just sort of picturing them as you pray. You are you're thinking about their their joys and their their struggles. Um, but it, it is not easy. There's a, a scripture passage in a, another epistle, Colossians. It, it refers to this man named Epaphras, and it says he wrestles in prayer. Oh. And, and I, I find that it really requires discipline to keep the mind from wandering. Or I, I think of what Jesus said to Peter, what could you not watch and pray with me for one hour? It can be a, a, a great challenge, and that's one reason I walk often when I pray. I'll, I'll walk you know, around the neighborhood like I referred to before, but even if I stay in my apartment, uh, you know, my, my wife teases me because I'm pacing in the apartment, <laughs> or I'll go out on our balcony and I will pace. And there's even a, a, a special place in Berlin that I go to where I got to be aware of people around me, but I'll even sing a little bit (laughs) and uh, people think I'm, you know, crazy, but it's remote (laughs) enough that, that I can get by with even a little bit of singing. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, man. I love that. You got a great voice and uh, I'd imagine that the passersby feel grateful to hear, hear you sing. Hopefully. So you awake around 5, 5.30, and you got to get Zach on the bus at, let's call it, 7.15, 7.30. At what point in the morning are you usually done with P-R-A-N-Y? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, you know, it depends on the jogging or the walking, you know, whatever the schedule is. But, but I'm trying to get back sort of to the home office 9.30, 10-ish. Is it possible that the amount of good in the world might be relative to how well your knees are holding up in your age? <laughs> Just putting it out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is an issue, the yeah. knees, yes. Yeah. So let me ask you. So you get back 9.30, shower up, clean up, and then you have to start preparing for the events that you have. And I want to get some insight from you about your preparation for a couple of your responsibilities, one of which is Bible study. Like, simply put, how do you prepare for for Bible study? Like, what do you do to get ready for, say, a Thursday evening when people are coming together to study the Bible with you and yours? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, we're starting with the Bible and believing that the Bible is a revelation from God. I really try to connect that also with with prayer. And I'm not saying that I always do this, but that is something I try to make a conscious effort to do to really start with approaching, you know, the the author of, of this 
and then and then going to him, you know, throughout. But then at some point you have to deal with this ancient text, and and you you realize that there is uh, there's grammar you have to deal with, there's cultural context, historical context. So you're you're trying to read through a passage and just get this sense of what is the meaning of this passage. How did the what was the author saying? How did the original uh, hearers, you know, understand this? And then you are thinking about application, you know, how does this apply today? But a Bible study is, is very different because you're not monologuing. When people show up at the house or wherever the, the venue is, for a Bible study, you really want it to be very interactive. And so a large part of the preparation for a Bible study is really crafting you know, the right kind of, of questions to, to get people to really engage and enter into it. And most recently, I have been involved in a teen Bible study, and so it's so much more important to engage them. I must confess, uh, one of my most recent memories of a Bible study, it was just, uh, I guess, two or three weeks ago, and I can still picture off to my left, there, I thought we were engaging the kids, and, and there was this, this teenage boy uh-huh. who I look over and his eyes are closed. <laughs> and so we thought, well, yeah. I, I thought, we have a problem there, and yeah, so how yeah. can we reel him in? And thankfully, through the rest of the, the, the studies, seem to be doing just fine and interacting. But um, yeah, yeah, you really want to see them enter into these questions, and, th- and then it can kind of take a life of its own. I mean, it can sort of go off on a rabbit trail, some that are very beneficial, but then you realize, oh, we got to rein this back in a little bit. But yeah. I, I do enjoy uh, a Bible study as opposed to, say, a sermon. On one hand, it's very similar because the topic is is the Bible, a passage of, of Scripture that does need to be studied and prepped for, but then the whole interactive side of it is what makes it very different. Do you give homework, if you will, for the Bible study groups? Are people assigned at the end of the evening to read pages X, Y, and Z, and then we're going to come back and talk about that passage given the questions that you've crafted? Or is it more that we're reading together how does that all work? Sure, we have done it both ways, okay. and it sort of depends upon the group, and you even get the group's input as to how they would like to approach that. But yes, we have done, for instance, there are times when we have gone through not only the Bible, but then like a, a study guide, and typically there will be homework you know, with that approach. Or sometimes we've even written homework questions you know, our, ourselves. With with teens, for instance, we've we've really held back. We've not done a bunch of homework, thinking that they are right. getting enough homework. You, you're welcome, sir. Especially in Lazar's class. <laughs> uh-huh, <huh>? I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so you've tried it both ways. Gutshot response. Do you have a preference, a strong preference, for whether people come in having done the reading versus people? coming in and you're doing the reading together. I don't really have a strong preference. I do want to structure these Bible studies in such a way that that a new person could come in. 
And, right. and so that's what makes it nice, for instance, if you don't have a, a homework and you're going through more of a rigid study, you just almost want to have this mentality of here's an empty chair and that could be filled by by a new person. Yes. And you want them to be able to, to fit right into That it. makes sense. That makes sense. That answers the question, I think. So I want to get into your sermons a little bit. And I have this sense in your sermons and in your work more broadly, you're pursuing a, a rather challenging balancing act, right? You're deeply rooted in, in scripture and authorial intent and history, but you're also very much seeking to support a community in the here and the now and seeking to, to make the, the scripture and, and the history feel relevant and connected to the present. So you're trying to connect past and present, which does make me think that, that your job and mine have hmm. some similarities. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can guide me. How do you connect the past with the present in your work as a pastor? Yeah, so when you're prepping for a sermon, you know, it is, again, I would say, I, I'm trying to continually go back to prayer and, and ask for, you know, divine insight, if you will. But you are also thinking of people, you know, in the congregation who are going to be hearing this sermon. And you realize that this may be exciting to you and it better be. I mean, that's, that's the start. If, if, if it's not something I am passionate about, I can just forget that this is going to be a, an effective sermon, but I've had the benefit of all this study, you know, through the week. And of course you're only given a, a small percentage of, of what you have studied on a given passage. So you're keeping in mind, um, people. And I have found that illustrations are, are just so critical. What would be a good connection? Um, it, it, and it doesn't have to be anything super complex. You know, sometimes even just a simple illustration will work, but you're, you're trying to make sure that you are connecting with people. Someone has said it this way, you have one foot in the word and kind of the other foot, like in the congregation, if you will, and you're trying right, to balance. Right. So just to make sure I'm hearing you right, like what you're saying is, you know, you agree that you got one foot in the past, you got one foot in the present. And I guess I'm trying to get a sense, is your response then that you're able to do that by developing like creative illustrations of, of scripture that have like a contemporary resonance. You're sort of speaking in modern parlance. You're using metaphors of the contemporary era to, to illustrate scripture. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm trying to always do is start with scripture and, and make sure that any illustration that I give or say I bring uh, a current event, you know, into the sermon, I am really trying to let the text drive that. So for me, it's just critical. If, if we truly believe, you know, this is uh, divine inspiration, 
in, in if we truly believe this is what people need, they don't need my words, the words of Steve Dye, but they're there to to hear what scripture is saying. And and so what I'm trying to do is get scripture across first and foremost. And then if there's any way that that can be effectively illustrated, I am also trying to do that, but that's always secondary to the text. Does that make sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. So I think part of the reason that I'm interested in how you balance the the past and the present the the text and the you know contemporary world such as it is is because I, I took the liberty to to watch a couple of your sermons which are posted on your website and uh, barring any objections I'll share in the the liner notes to to our, our episode together and you clearly do an extraordinary amount of preparation for your sermons. And I guess I just would be really grateful if you would walk me through the process, your process of developing sermons, like starting from step one. Like let's say you know that in a month's time, it's going to be on you to give a sermon. Yeah, you're excited yeah. about it. It's it's a passage that has come to mean a lot to you. You're enthusiastic, and now you got to sit down with a good book, pen, paper. How do you start? Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe a shift that has happened is I'm working now with a a team, you know, of teachers, and so really it sort of goes back before you know, my individual sermon, we're meeting collectively and we're trying to determine, okay, where are we going next? And so, for instance, we just decided back in December that our next series would be the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew 5, 6, and and 7. And so we just started that yesterday and I gave the first uh, sermon of that series. And so, backing up, we sort of need to kind of collectively decide, you know, where we are going. Can I ask what were the main reasons that you all decided to go with Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Like, what does that decision-making process look like? Yeah, yeah. And we we banter that around. We had different ideas, but you're sort of trying to balance Old Testament, you know, New Testament. And so, you know, we're trying to also consider the epistles, like for instance, from the Apostle Paul versus gospel. And we realized we had not been in one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, recently. And so I think trying to get back to one of the gospels was a factor. And then another thought was this particular section of scripture is such a beautiful summary. One could say that it sort of is the interpretation of the Old Testament. And then in this section, you would have kind of an exposition of Christ's law that is referred to in the New Testament. So it kind of brings together 
the Bible in a unique way. And so I think that was attractive to us. And then it just deals with so many topics that we all face today. And so we thought, you know, when it comes to fidelity to the the biblical text, this is a great choice, but I think it will also speak to where we are at uh, right now. And I I would say too that our philosophy, mine and the others, would be to rather than just sort of go topical to go through systematically a book in the Bible or a, in this case, a, a passage, realizing that there are times when it's very appropriate to kind of suspend that if there's something very significant happening in the world or something happening in the congregation. But for the most part, we do try to uh, go through a book or a series of chapters, for instance, what we're looking at with the Sermon on the Mount, we take that approach. But I guess I still have not answered your question. <laughs> but hold on, I'm going to make it more complex. I won't forget the question. For our listeners, it's wise to point out that you are, shall we say, the lead pastor among a team? Yes. Uh, well, Yes and no. Okay. I'm a co-lead pastor. Okay. We have, and I'm really excited about this. We have a German guy. His name is Martin, and he is the the co-lead pastor now. And then we have a couple of other elders or or pastors. And so I just felt it was important to. We are an international church, but we are living in Berlin, Germany, and rather than this being led exclusively by an American pastor, we just felt it was really appropriate to uh, have a German in leadership, especially with my taking this other role. And so I serve with uh, with this uh, wonderful guy, Martin, who also has a child in the John F. Kennedy School. Oh, no kidding. Off mic. I will ask you who that is. Okay. So you and your co-lead, as well as some of the elders, you get together, you decide what's on the docket for the next several several weeks. And then... Through that process of discussion, it, it comes evident that that you, Steve, are going to be giving a sermon on February twelfth. Yeah. Now you got to sit down with the pen and the paper. That's right. Talk to me about that. Sure, sure. Well, again, it, it starts with, or it should. the The goal is always that it is uh, begun with with prayer. And then you just take that passage and just simply read over it multiple times in English. And then you begin to realize there are some key terms in this passage. And so depending on if it's the New Testament or the Old Testament, it's going to involve some work, although I am not at all proficient in either Hebrew or Greek. I took both. But I'm just, I do well enough that I can go to some technical helps and do some word studies. So that's going to be a part of it. What, what is this word in the original language? Uh, what, what is the, the meaning here? You're also looking at, you know, what, what kind of genre is this? You're going to approach Paul's teachings much different than you would say, narrative in the Old Testament, for example, or, or even uh, 
narrative that you can find in the New Testament. For instance, Jesus's parables, you know, you're going to approach it very, very differently depending on the the, the genre that you're you're looking at. And of course, you're trying to figure out the historical factors that enter into this as well as the cultural. So you're just digging into the text, spending a lot of time. And then what I have found that is very helpful is I have some go-to commentaries. Now, you can't let them do all your work for you. But there are some trustworthy commentaries that I that I go to. And so that is the lion's share of it, just digging into this text and looking at it from all of these angles. And then often then what can happen is as you are digging in the text, an outline can sort of begin to emerge, just flowing right from that. And I find that is always the hardest part to sort of get that outline um, that you think, okay, this is going to work. This is faithful to what scripture is saying, but logically it is something that makes sense to me. So I hope it would make sense to the hearers. And so that is a lot of it right there, just understanding the text and then sort of getting the, the outline and then from there, uh-huh. you start thinking of the people. Right, you know. right. In thinking of the people, we have to think of attention spans. Exactly. What's about the longest you let yourself go and what's maybe the shortest or the shorter end of the, the length of a sermon? Sure, sure. Yeah, there are times when we have done something, when I have done something, you know, that is more like a devotional. It can be 10 minutes, you know, 15 minutes. But that typical Sunday sermon, yeah. because we only meet together on Sunday for the corporate group, so we, we do want to kind of give them some meat, you know, as, yeah, yeah. as much as they can put up with. And so 40 minutes, though, is about the maximum. All right. Uh, you know, like yesterday, I think my sermon was pushing 40 minutes, and <laughs> that's about it. And your rehearsal. Can you talk to me just briefly, maybe, about your process of preparing to really, you, you got the structure, you got your thoughts clear, you feel confident that you know what you need to deliver and that it's going to add value to the members of your congregation. But then you got to like button this thing up, make it compelling because you're a compelling dude and there's no doubt about it. What's your preparation like for delivering this baby. Yeah. You know, in my earlier years, I actually had uh, a less detailed outline, but I have found in more recent years, I almost write down now every word. I mean, it is still in an outline form, Uh but I fill in that outline and try to have a pretty tight introduction and conclusion. And then, you know, uh, almost verbatim word for word. And, and so once that is done, you know, your, your thoughts flow through sort of your lips and your fingertips, if you will. And so I've kind of done the fingertips thing because it's been typed out. Yeah. And then depending on how critical it is to, to have it tight, then I will rehearse it. For instance, a wedding 
when you want to just be very precise every single word or there have been times with a larger audience that I don't, I went back to my alma mater and, and, and spoke. Did you really? And I, I did. Oh, that's and, great. And, um, you know, I definitely rehearsed that right. several times yeah. because I really almost wanted to have it memorized. I didn't want to need to be looking at, at notes. My own congregation is a little more forgiving, but, but I will talk through portions of it. I probably don't, to be honest, I don't actually preach through it, you know, just in the privacy of my room, although I'm, I'm preaching through maybe portions of it as I'm kind of writing it out. I'm, I'm thinking about it, you know, the night before the morning. So there is some of that rehearsing that goes on, but I typically don't do that unless it's a very special occasion where I want every single word. You always want every single word to count, but you know what I'm saying? It can be a bit more informal room for some spontaneity. I I think that's maybe where some of your energy comes from. And and that has, yeah, it can get you into trouble. Um, (laughs) I know. Now, now uh, I've, I've spoken, I've preached in German a few times um, but I'm very tied to my notes. My yeah. and and there there have been a couple of times when I've tried to be somewhat spontaneous, and you feel like you're going out on the limb of a tree, and the 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 branch is starting to break. Yeah, and yeah. We got to get back to the trunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not very spontaneous when it comes to German. That's for sure. I understand. I can't believe it didn't even cross my mind until you said it that you uh, officiate more than your fair share of weddings. You do. Not as much as you used to, maybe. Well, not as much. That that would be something I think maybe unique to our international congregation. We have only had a handful of weddings uh, over the years, but that is part of it. Yes, officiating weddings for sure. That's got to be fun. It is very fun. I have a million questions about that, but I'm not going to. I'm not gonna. I know it's since it's not such a substantial part of your work. I won't force you to dive into the wedding side of things. So, Steve, I know like you work assiduously when it comes to preparing for Bible study groups and preparing for these sermons, and it means the world to you. And you work hard to communicate clearly with people and to create a, a, a climate of like sacred devotion, yeah. really. And people listen to you. You're, you're kind, you're, you're compassionate, you're charismatic, you're a good guy. Everyone, when I told people <laughs> that you're going to be on the podcast, everybody was super excited. Everyone's crazy about you. I see why. I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning. I, I get it. They're going to listen to you for these reasons. Your congregation adores you. But a lot of your work really depends on you listening to your congregation yeah. mm-hmm. as well. In your work, what do you do to ensure that you hear what your congregants are saying and feeling? Yeah. Well, there's no substitute for simply being with people, you know, just spending time with people. As people are honest, they will say things that would make it clear that they might not agree 
with with something or they find something that was said to be uh, hard um, or you know they might feel uh, like they're being neglected like uh, I, I you know I've heard that before that you're investing in some people but you know not in me so there is this sense of of trying to have a pulse you know where people are at and um, you know for instance yesterday th- there was uh, a lady who is uh, struggling very severely with diabetes and and um, multiple issues really and someone in the congregation says she wants to to talk to you and so I you know I I, I went over and I wasn't sure where the conversation would go, but she just broke out in tears. And I realized I need to really talk to this, this lady, Karen is her name and sat down right beside her and just put my arm around her. And and she, she just began sobbing saying, I'm afraid to die. And so we're talking and praying together. And so that's an example of uh, someone and I'm just very thankful that could have been a missed opportunity, but yes. um, I'm glad that for that person who said, you know, that person who got my attention and, and she said, uh, Karen wants to, to talk to you. I had a conversation yesterday with another young lady who we had a disagreement and, you know, th- there are controversial issues that come up. One of the issues has been the whole, you know, marriage and sexuality issue, you know, transgenderism. And um, we've, we had to work through, you know, some multiple conversations where I'm trying to listen to her. And we ended up agreeing to disagree. But I'm very thankful that the friendship, it, it is definitely not lost. The friendship is intact, even though we are disagreeing on on this this issue. So those are just a couple of examples that come to mind. Yeah. Forgive me for not envisioning how much time you probably spend comforting people. You're a leader of a community. Is it the case that a not insubstantial part of your work is you know celebrating with people? Yeah. When you know, they, they have a baby or they get married, or, but also consoling them when times are tough. Yes, yeah, certainly that is a part of it. Now, I would say that is probably something that I do less than the typical pastor, say, in the United States, because the congregation does tend to consist of, of younger people and younger families. So in the case of, for instance, this lady that I was referring to, a lot of that is she's just at the end of life. However, uh, you know, we know that tragedies can come to anyone, you know, regardless of, of the age. And so comforting is certainly going to be a part of this. And I, you know, I remember, a while back, there was a, a, a man who seemed to have it all together. And he just opened up and he just said, I am afraid when it comes to the future. You know, we had to talk about fear. What does that look like? And I hope I was of uh, some comfort to him. But a lot of it is, yeah, just listening 
to uh, individuals who they, you know, they feel like they can trust you and uh, they, they open up to you. So that is certainly a part of the job. Yeah. So while you have a flock to tend to in Berlin, you are, per the mission statement that we previously read, seeking to scatter globally. And I know that a lot of your work is devoted to missionary work in the Middle East and North Africa. How do you describe your missionary work? Yeah, so when I think of missionary work, I guess that word mission, it would go back to this idea of being sent. And we even kind of see that in the Trinity, you know, the Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Spirit. And so we're just really connecting to what we see in the, the Godhead. And um, yeah, it's this idea of, uh, you know, trying to go forth and share what we believe, you know, the good news is this idea that, that God saves us through uh, his son, Jesus. But of course, there's that challenge. There is that message that can be very troubling to some people. And so you're, you're trying to, on one hand, fulfill what you believe you are called to do and share this in a tactful way, in an appropriate way. Now, I, I should say there's the, also the side of not just simply meeting what we would say would be spiritual needs, but but there are physical needs that that can be met. For instance, with with refugees, there's so much of that. These people have great uh, physical and social needs, and so that has to be a part of it. But we would really believe that the the greatest social need is is that that need for you know a relationship with with God. So some of that I get to be involved in directly in Berlin. Yeah. Um, but then probably most of my time would be spent when it comes to the missionary side of it. I'm really in more of a support and directional role. There are these workers or missionaries who are in the Middle East and North Africa. They are living there, doing a variety of, of ministries. And I am just trying to meet on a regular basis with them and encourage them and make trips to the field, you know, occasionally and uh, occasionally uh, bring them together so that they can be encouraged uh, as we meet collectively for a retreat or a conference. And so uh, it's in Berlin that I get to do a little bit of that directly myself, but mainly I'm in more of a, a support, a directional role for those who are beyond Berlin. Right. And Certainly in parts of the Middle East and North Africa, we don't have the most, shall we say, friendly climate towards Christianity That's right. and Christian mission. There's a history there. You're aware of this history. If I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is that your friends and colleagues, the missionaries in the Middle East and North Africa, they're doing difficult, challenging, sometimes dangerous work, and they're seeking your support. What do you say to them? Yeah, and, and that's interesting. Even the name, of course, missionary, we would not even use that in that context. You know, they are involved in, uh, for instance, I just, just heard a message from an uh, individual who is in Northwest Africa, and he has a concrete company 
but there's also an international church in the city that is recognized by by the government and so between the concrete company and his attendance in this international church he sort of has you know he and his family a legit presence but it is very dangerous in this uh this particular city and country and so yeah again there's a lot of listening because there's no way that i understand their context and so you're just trying to um, encourage them and uh, a lot of it is just getting to know them and building a relationship and it's beautiful to see how uh, even though I'm sort of, yes, their boss, there really is a friendship with virtually all of them that has developed between them and, and, and my wife and I, because she often meets with me on these video calls and, and she has gone on trips with me along with our son, uh, Zach. And so th- there is sort of that friendship aspect of it too, but we're, we're very careful not to sort of impose upon them, okay, this is what works for us in Berlin. This is what you can do there because it is a very, very different environment. But when they do ask, we will give some input, but try to balance that with this humble posture because we don't really, we don't understand what they are dealing with day in and, and day out. So if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is that with some frequency, a few nights a week maybe, you're on Zoom calls with friends, affiliates yeah. in the Middle East and North Africa, and your job is to be empathic, to listen, to coach when they ask explicitly for, for coaching and guidance. Mm-hmm. Does that sound about right? Yeah, there is certainly some of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting you use the word coaching because that's a bit of a loaded term. Uh, Is it? It it is because I I have learned that uh, when it comes to coaching, and this is something that I need to continually work on, is asking questions. Yes. And I can't say that I have mastered it, but I am working (laughs) on asking questions and trying to, through those questions, see people come up with their own uh, solution to, yeah. to their, their situation. Sometimes I'm probably too directive, but uh, I'm trying to work on the coaching side of it. Uh, you and me both. Yeah. And that's part of this podcast project for me is just exactly. to really dive into the, the art of asking questions. I'm getting better. I've got a long way to go. Yeah, I hear you. It's interesting that coaching is kind of a loaded term for you because I, I think it's, no surprise to you that you know missionary is a, a loaded term for for many absolutely um i think that as you might imagine it's possible that some of our listeners here they might be uncomfortable with missionary work yeah. with, with the term and the idea there is indeed a complicated historical legacy here and and you know this and we're not here to adjudicate this but i would like to ask you what you think people, skeptics, if you will, get wrong about the work of the Christian missionary? Yeah, maybe I could just 
answer that by reflecting on, you know, an incident that happened even here in Berlin. I was, uh, this was a few years ago, and I was uh, preaching a sermon on Christmas Eve. You know, I, I came across, I think, to this person very much, too much like a missionary. What What he interpreted, and this goes along with your question of listening to people, but he basically took away from this message that I was saying that those who reject Jesus are evil, worthy to be sort of exterminated. And, and I just um, was very saddened that, you know, he had that um, reaction. And he had two teenage girls who were attending our, our youth group. And he said, this is likened to hate speech, and I will no longer have my uh, girls in the youth group unless you can convince me otherwise. But it opened up a, a great opportunity just to have a dialogue with this, this individual. He was a, a diplomat with the Canadian, um, at the Canadian embassy, and, and uh, thankfully he took the time you know, to, to talk together, and I shared with him uh, that I have a friend, Hiroki, from Japan, who I meet with on a regular basis for, uh, I was meeting with him for Bible studies, and, and Hiroki wanted to do this, but, but to my knowledge, Hiroki, you know, just continued on with his Buddhist ideology and never really embraced, you know, the, the, the Christian faith. But I said, he's, he's my friend, you know, he, the friendship isn't dependent upon whether or not, you know, Hiroki converts. And, and that's the way I would want to approach you or, or anyone who's listening. This, this notion that, that somehow you are to be discarded. And that's sort of how he, he took it, if you don't receive this message, is wrong. Anyway, it was a good conversation. And he, he allowed his daughters to come back to the, the youth group. And actually, one of them did even embrace Christianity. But you are right. It is, it is a loaded term. I feel the tension of trying to be obedient to what I see in Scripture that my mandate would be, and that is to share the, the good news that, that God, that we are in need of a Savior and that God sent His Son Christ to us. However, there are people who simply, people who don't believe in God, period. And then then you add to that this notion that Jesus, this Jesus is the way to him. And I want to be very sensitive to that. And so you're tr there's a tension where you're trying to be true to that message, but also avoid unnecessarily offending people. Do you feel that tension acutely in the secular city of Berlin? You, you certainly do. Uh, or, I mean, I certainly do. However, you know, one of the things I do like about Berlin 
is it's also a very tolerant city. Yes. And, and so, uh, you know, I have found people to be, okay, you, you believe that I totally disagree, but I'll let you, I'll let you believe what you want to believe. You're a nut, but, but I, yeah, you're okay. I still like you, even though I don't agree with you and I think you're crazy. So, but, but yeah, Yeah, yeah. you just have to recognize that there, there are people who flat out don't even believe in God. And so, uh, then when you start talking about the specifics of Jesus coming as the savior to the world, the vast majority of Berliners do not accept that message. Thank you for sharing that. In the lead up to this conversation, I was thinking a lot about the degree to which and the ways in which you feel there's a tension between you and the the secular communities in Berlin. And it sounds like, um, you got the right attitude to, to grapple with that tension and uh doesn't seem like that tension is stopping you from doing what you believe in. And that's, uh, I think there's something beautiful about that. And you've been doing it for a long time. You've been in Berlin for over 20 years. And I'm curious how your work has evolved over your two decades here in Berlin. Yeah, I guess I'll go back to that sport analogy of coaching, but I'll start with a player. I guess at the beginning, I felt like I was much more the, the player, if you will, the one, uh, who is, uh, you know, giving the lion's share of the sermons and, um, initiating ministries and doing really the, the hands-on, if I wasn't going to do it, it wasn't going to to happen. But over time, I've sort of moved from that direct player role to to maybe more of a player coach, where I have seen as I get older, it's so important to really pour into others and 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 see them thrive, and and have them uh, you know taste what it's like to use their their gifts, and so even though I still love playing in the game myself, (laughs) um, there's probably now that player coaching role that, that is uh, considerably more prominent, I I should say. And then uh, maybe another way to view it is I think this was from Paul Harvey. He talked about um, going back to Jesus's uh, command to be fishers of men that, that there was much more of that in the beginning years where I'm, I'm directly involved with, with people. And now there's been a bit of a shift to like being a keeper of the tank. Um, ah. <laughs> I think that's from Paul Harvey and I like and, that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I still like to, again, be involved in the fishing myself, but there probably is more of the keeping of the tank part. Yeah. Your role has evolved yeah. from, from a, a player to a tank keeper, to mix <laughs> metaphors. Yep, yep. But what do you know about leadership now hmm. that you didn't know when you arrived in Berlin some 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah, I guess I would define leadership as influencing people toward the purposes that God would have for them. As I think about pastoral leadership. I, I have seen, I think, as I have gotten older, the importance of encouraging others. And so I, I'm trying to be much more intentional if, if you see 
someone, you know, who's doing well in, in an area to, to try to actually speak into that. And I know that in my younger years, when older leaders would do that to me, how meaningful I can remember specifically the sorts of things people said to affirm me and encourage me. So now I'm thinking, okay, Steve, it's your turn, you know, to do that with others. So I think that's been a shift. I think another shift has been seeing the importance, and maybe this is the other side of it, of speaking the truth too. Mm. And I, I think in my earlier years, I, I shied away from confronting because I was fearful of the consequences. And that still is a, is a fear. Oftentimes when you really do confront someone, uh, it can go south. But I have learned, okay, try to do that in love. But, but you do need to, to speak the truth. You, you're trying to help people. And if you don't speak the truth when that needs to be spoken, is that really helpful? And before, I think in my earlier years, it was very important to always be liked. And now I'm realizing, nope, I can think of people who, who just flat out, they don't like me. Now, thankfully, in some cases, you know, that, that's turned around and, and things have been patched up. But, but there are people who, who I'm just not sure how much they like me, but I still feel like I had to be honest uh, with them. And then maybe another lesson along the way, and this is something I'm still learning. I think it's been said, you can go faster alone, but you can go further together. And so a much more collaborative approach to uh, ministry than I would have in my you know earlier years. Yeah. And I can imagine that in learning all those lessons about leadership and maybe learning the virtue of maybe sometimes being disliked by some, there's a lot of frustration in learning these lessons. And I think you do very difficult work. Can you share with me a little bit about some of the most frustrating parts of being a pastor of an international church in Berlin? There are days when it just gets off to a crummy start, you know, and, and then, you know, it would be, uh, days when there's inordinate amount of more, you know, administrative tasks, you know, answering emails and messages that you feel are somewhat meaningless or, or, uh, completing a report or having to wade in financial matters, you know, both with the Berlin side and then the mission side. But I guess probably the, the greatest sense of frustration would be when you are trying to help someone. And, you know, in some cases, they're actually very, very opposed to that. But in other cases, most often, it's, it's a case of, of they're just, they're not going to follow that advice. And so you're sort of watching kind of a train wreck happen. And you just have to sort of realize what can you do? I mean, you're doing your part to try to share this in a compelling way, in a loving way. But there are some people who will just sort of do the opposite and do something that I perceive is, is harmful to them spiritually. 
and, and that can be frustrating, yeah. but then you realize, okay, you know, as long as they're alive, there's still hope and the story's not over. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just ask a small yeah. follow-up per the first thing you were just speaking of? I didn't want to ask you too much about your administrative work because, um, it's just maybe less interesting to me and perhaps less interesting to you than some of the things we've been talking about. But can you give me a sense of like the proportion or the percentage of the time that you spend answering emails and doing paperwork and making sure that the financial situation is in order and the taxes are done and, 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 and what about, about what percent of your time is spent on that stuff? You know, I was thinking about that and I, maybe it's because it's the start of a new year and you're trying to think of how you can, you know, better streamline your life. But I would say probably between 30, 40 percent of, of my time is Eek. given to those sorts of things. And, you know, some of that can be actually meaningful. You know, there there can be an exchange of, of text messages or WhatsApp messages or emails that, that can really kind of move over into meaningful ministry. But then there can be some of it that <laughs> it, it honestly does feel like a, a waste of, of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that I, I must admit that that is a, a frustration, but it is something that you realize it comes with what I do Yes, there are ways to try to think about making this more efficient, but you may as well just whistle while you work and yeah, get yeah. through it. There you go. There you go. Look, I got to grade papers and take attendance too yes. and uh, whistle while you work. There's the other side, like from the frustrating side to fulfilling side. I told you, I asked Zach today when I yeah. saw him in class yeah. what he would want me to ask you. And his gut response was, Ask him what the most fulfilling parts of his job are. So, Steve, what are the most fulfilling parts of your job? Yeah, I would say, yeah, the flip side of that would be when, when you are, and, and I hope it's not a, a situation where you're trying to dictate what you think someone should do, but you, you have this sense of maybe what someone needs for their well-being, and, and they agree with that. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking back to a situation. There was a, a guy that just showed up out of the blue. He somehow got my number and just contacted me and, and said that uh, he said, wow, I'm I'm struggling right now. What had happened is he he moved from the States to a multinational company here in, in Berlin and just before he moved, there was a farewell party for their family, and he had been involved in an affair that his wife knew nothing about. And the uh, the individual who he was involved with shows up Ugh. at the farewell party no. and lets everyone know and is, is just irate, kind of letting the cat out of the bag. And it just, it, it of course, kills the whole party. <laughs> And then, <laughs> to say the least, to yeah. say the least, yeah. And then, and then he has to get on a plane and come over, and 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 he was devastated. Yeah. You know, he, you know, he he'd betrayed his wife, and and uh, she was going to end the marriage, and so we just sat together and and prayed together. He did not believe he he would have had some belief in God, but beyond that, you know, he he really made the commitment to to give his life to. To Christ, you know, right, 
right on the spot. And um, his his wife and daughters came over, and it was important for her to know that he had met with me. And she she said, "I think the guy's changed. My I think my husband's changed." And and the marriage was was restored. And a couple years later, they kind of recommitted their vows to oh. to one another. And they've just gone. They've been friends. You know, they they since have moved back to the states, but we keep in touch with them. Just a lovely family. So that is when it gets really fulfilling when you when you think, okay, someone. Their life was really in shambles, and and there was this dramatic uh, change. Um, so uh, those times are very fulfilling. Or I remember specifically, there was uh, we were at a retreat, you know, outside of Berlin, and there was this family, all four of them the 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 father, the mother, the two kids. They they all got baptized, yeah. And you know, just just it was just beautiful hearing their faith stories and just seeing this commitment to kind of go down into the water and just this the sun was shining. I thought, man, it just doesn't get any better than this. Those are just these special moments that that you have when it feels very fulfilling. Yeah. Well, thank you for for sharing that with me, and thank you for sharing your your faith story with me. And that should be enough, but I am, as I always say, a perpetual ingrate. So I have to ask you for, for two favors before I let, let you roll. First, I'm hoping that you could share with me a professional triumph and a professional failure. And maybe we should start with the failure so that we can wrap on a note of triumph. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely say let's start with the bad news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I would say times when I have been impatient with people, when I've gotten angry, I'm thinking about a specific case. I can picture it like it was yesterday. There is this little boy who now, you know, is a young man, but I'm going to call him Teddy. And I was working with a, a group of children, three or four children, and this Teddy was very obnoxious. And, and he was being mean to the other children and he got into my I had my backpack and I'm trying to work with with children he's rooting around on my back I'm telling him not to do that and and he just defiantly you know disobeys me and I I really I lost my cool with this child and I I lashed out at this child and you could just see the eyes you know, here is this adult, this, I'm supposed to be a pastor. I, you know, I, I think of that incident, but that's not, sadly, that's not an isolated incident. There, there have been times when I have just um, not listened to people like I should have. Uh, when I have gotten angry, Another son of mine, David, worked for Teach for America, and one of sort of the mantras that he learned is, you know, hurt people, hurt people, and you know, not recognizing that that hey, the way the the reason people are behaving the way they are often is is they are carrying hurt, and so uh, failing to recognize that, and I. I think I can honestly say that that has changed, you know, in more recent years. But I would say looking back over my ministry career, 
I just shared that one about Teddy. Yeah. But there are other ones. And I would consider those to be very serious failures that, that I'm not at all uh, happy about. Yeah. Well, I hope that uh, you can give yourself some grace. And thankfully, I, I, you know, I think of, of an individual, for instance, who, who I did express uh, my anger toward. And then I, I sensed a real conviction. I remember reaching out to him in a letter and he was very gracious. Yeah. We met up together and it was a beautiful thing to kind of have that relationship restored. So it can happen. It can go the other direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hear about the other direction. Success, yeah, I, triumph. I want to hear it. Well, you know, I, I guess the, the triumph would be actually seeing this congregation established. Um, we, we celebrated the 20-year anniversary of the congregation back in the spring. And I remember shortly after arriving in Berlin, you know, 20-plus years ago, I was at a parent evening at JFK and, uh, you know, I think we we're painting a wall. It was, we were in the classroom trying to spruce it up, you know, a little bit before the, the school season would start. And before we totally gave up on the aesthetic yeah, of the place. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and there, there, there was a, a fellow, uh, uh, parent who she asked me, you know, what are you doing in Berlin? And I said, well, I'm actually here to, to start, an international Baptist church. And she just kind of looked at me like, yeah, do you think there's a market for an international Baptist church? And, you know, I had to say, I, I don't know. And, and yeah, But I've got but, my cup of coffee. Yeah, and... But I bought my cup of coffee. Right. Right. But just to see after these years uh, in, in uh, shortly before we celebrated the 20 year anniversary, you know, we had to go back to the U S for an entire year and, um, you know, you're wondering, how's this, this congregation going to do when we're away? We came back and there were areas in which it was far stronger, you know, without us. And so you think, okay, we, we can be very thankful that we at least have been instruments. I mean, again, going back to scripture, Jesus said, I will build my church. So it's his thing. Um, but he does, I believe, uses, he uses instruments and, and hopefully I think of that Thomas, the tank engine. I just want to be a, what's, what's the saying? A really useful engine. That's what yeah. I desire to be. And, yeah, yeah. and so I do consider that to be a, a triumph that this congregation has gotten established. All right. I'm happy for you. Thanks. Dave. I think you, I think you, uh, you're passionate about your work and you've built something from the ground up. It's important. One more thing before you go. I want to give you the opportunity to share with our listeners here something that in, informs your thinking about your work. And this could be anything, a book, a poem, a song, a hymn, a little passage of scripture, whatever it is that you want to share with us, we'll, uh, we'll let that wrap it. All right. Well, Daniel, I think I'm going to choose a tree and it is a, a specific tree. It is a shag bark hickory tree on the northeast corner of that farm that I was referring to back in Ohio that I had the privilege of, of growing up on this very special piece of land. My favorite tree in the world. And um, I remember as a boy, it was just a little over the size of a sapling. 
and I would just go out there. Yeah, it was one of my kind of praying places. And, and I, I remember kind of making a life decision and putting a little piece of paper in the bark of that tree. And when I go back after all these years, I, whenever I go back to the farm, I make my way out to that tree. And now it's this massive uh, hickory tree. But what I have noticed the last couple of visits is now the offshoot of that tree. There are several, I would say a dozen small shagbark hickory trees that are growing up. And I, I guess I just thought I desire that to be my life like that tree. And then you mentioned a passage, a passage of scripture. How could I not go to scripture and, and Psalm one and it talks about this righteous person being like a tree whose fruit will will flourish in its season and whose leaf will not wither. That's the kind of life that I want to live, like that, that hickory tree who then influences other younger trees to be brought up and to grow in a nurturing environment. So I guess that kind of between the the tree and that passage, maybe that's what I would say uh, just uh, encapsulates uh, the career, ministry career that I have. Yeah, it does seem like you've created a healthy and a nurturing environment. You've also uh, brought a lot of joy to my evening here. Thank you so much for joining me in conversation. Thank you for being on For a Living. My privilege, Daniel. Great to be with you. All right. And there you have it, my friends. I told you. Lovely guy. That's my conversation with Steve Dye. So follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if for a living means something to you, and you have the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com slash for a living. Gonna be back in two weeks time. This time I'll be speaking with a luxury watch salesperson. That's right, we go from Baptist pastors to luxury watch salespeople. I don't see why not, but I do look forward to checking in with you in two weeks. Until then, please stay healthy, be kind, take care, and I'll be back with you soon.